Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to First Baptist Rocky Top. We're glad that you're here and glad that you're listening as we continue our study and look at Christmas and these wonderful Christmas stories, the Christmas story that emerges from the Bible. And we've been using some songs to kind of inspire and guide us as we work through the beautiful narrative that God gives us in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Most of you would not recognize the song Adeste Fidelis if I just read the title, but most of you would recognize the song itself, particularly the tune. It was originally written in Latin, and several authors are attributed to writing the famous words, but most commonly we give credit to a man named John Francis Wade, who wrote the original, and it was later translated into English by Frederick Oakley. Adesta Fidelis is Latin, as I said, and is translated, All Ye Faithful. And we sang the song as, O come, all ye faithful. It's an invitation. Come, all ye faithful, to Bethlehem. And it places those of us who sing it, both among the shepherds who rush to see the Christ child, and the long procession of faithful people throughout the centuries that have journeyed to Bethlehem in their hearts for over 2,000 years. And this is the story that we'll be learning from today, the Gospel of Luke, that gives us the most famous narrative of the birth of Christ. This is Luke chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verses 1 through 7, and then we'll conclude it in a moment as we read the second part. Luke 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You know, the brevity of the Christmas story always fascinates me. I think I've mentioned it pretty much every message for the past several Sundays that out of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Only Matthew and Luke record for us any story of what we commonly call the nativity of our Lord. Just a few verses here in both Gospels that we have that have inspired countless people throughout the ages to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and indeed has inspired countless books, volumes and volumes of information and messages and celebrations and songs that we gather here to celebrate today. It's simple brief, and yet remarkable in its revelation. It has no hints of any grand, legendary development. There's no luxurious accommodations, no dramatic orchestras, just the pure, simple narrowing of history to a point where we find two young Jewish people, a young man and a young woman, following God in faithful obedience. And we first read of this decree from Rome that reaches the whole of the Mediterranean world. This decree that goes out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. If you're reading from the beautiful King James translation, you would read that the decree was given so that the world could be taxed. 
we read the word registered here. The registration was to gather a census, the number of people living in a certain area, to accurately determine the amount of tax revenue that Rome could expect to collect from those under its dominion. And we've become fairly well acquainted with the author, Luke, and the way that he writes, given our journey that we took through the book of Acts. He is the author, Luke is, of both the gospel that carries his name and the book of Acts. And in both of these volumes, we see a stunning attention to accuracy and detail. It came to pass in those days, Luke clearly tells us that he recorded actual history He recorded real events. This isn't a fanciful, once-upon-a-time story. It's not a legendary story. These are real events that happened to real people. And Luke is telling us, if you don't believe them, then just walk across the street and talk to the folks that were actually a part of the story. Go find Mary. Go find a shepherd. Let them confirm what Luke is recording. At least it was for the contemporary writers at the time and readers at the time. So this decree coming out from Caesar Augustus, it began during the reign here of one of the most remarkable men of ancient history. Caesar Augustus was born with the name Octavian. He was named after his father. For decades, the world that this Caesar lived in and Jesus would be born into, the world of this Mediterranean area was wrecked by war, destruction, immorality, brutality. There was very little comfort and very little peace. But when Caesar Augustus rose to power, he made many reforms. He brought about peace because he defeated all of his rivals, certainly not a peaceful start, but one that brought about peace. And then he brought tremendous political skills. Many even remarked that it was brilliance that he brought. And he brought vast sums of money from Egypt to pay the Roman soldiers and to help the Roman economy, an era of the Pax Romana came upon the world, something known as the Roman peace, and certainly much could be said. Entire university courses are devoted to explaining this particular era of ancient history, so I'm not going to do it justice in just a brief nutshell this morning, but indeed he was a remarkable leader. But as great as Caesar Augustus was, he was only a man And the man who brought these answers also leveled a dear price on the Roman Empire. He demanded, over time, absolute power. You see, for hundreds and hundreds of years, Rome prided itself on being a republic, a nation that was governed by the rule of law, not by any one person. The idea that no man was above the law, and the Roman Senate and the army and all of the political leaders lived together in what could be a contentious arrangement at times as they disagreed, but nonetheless a system of checks and balances that had been put in place to protect the people. But now Octavius would change all that. Several years before Jesus' birth in 27 BC, he arranged for the Roman Senate to give him the title Augustus, which meant exalted, the sacred one. So now Rome was no longer functionally a republic governed by laws. It was an empire governed by an emperor. And the first emperor of Rome was this man we read about right here in the pages of Holy Scripture, Caesar Augustus. And it says something about the world that Jesus was born into. It was a world hungry for a savior, just like our own world. A world that was living in the reign of a political savior, that many viewed as Caesar Augustus, but that wasn't enough. 
So everyone goes to be registered because of this decree to his own city. Once again, an impressive thought that this man, Caesar Augustus, in his palaces of Rome, gave a command and the whole world responded. It was certainly up until this point, it seemed that there had never lived a man with more influence and power than Caesar Augustus. He had expanded the Roman Empire and he did much for his people. And as he sat in this palace and made his decree, he thought it was the supreme exercise of his capacity, the flexing of his political muscle, but he ultimately was just a tool in God's hand. Because God had promised by the prophet Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and this promise would be fulfilled. So this young couple comes from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, perhaps not inclined to travel, but they do so because of this decree that God had made Caesar Augustus do to make it happen, perhaps whether he knew it or not. So when they arrive here, the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which Bethlehem is just about six miles south outside of Jerusalem, but from Nazareth to Bethlehem, it's a journey of about 80 miles. It certainly wasn't a short distance in those days. It was a very significant undertaking with their limited transportation. And so Mary is there with Joseph, and we read that he went with his betrothed wife who was with child. We normally think that Mary was close to delivery when they made this journey, and most certainly this could be the case, although we don't know for sure. Joseph perhaps was eager to get her out of Nazareth to prevent her from going into labor on the journey, or they perhaps just made it in the nick of time. We don't know, but the Bible just tells us that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth forth her firstborn son. Once again, one of the striking things about Luke's narrative is how simple it is. Yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke presented this most amazing event in an understated manner. She brought forth her firstborn son. This phrase filled with wonder. You know, a good number of you here have witnessed childbirth, or for many women, you've given birth yourself. And in my view, it's one of the great miracles that we can commonly witness as a human. While it is a natural thing, the process of that child developing fearfully and wonderfully in the womb of the mother is mind-boggling and wonderful. We're not told that anyone assisted Mary with this birth, though I would presume that Joseph was there helping and lovingly guiding her, doing all that he could do. It's believed, uh, according to Justin Martyr, that the place where Jesus was born in Bethlehem was a cave. And later on, Constantine of Rome would build a great church over the cave, which many still believe is the most likely place that Jesus was born. And when he is born, Mary takes him and wraps him in swaddling clothes, swaddling cloths, and which were just snugly wrapped strips of cloth, and of course puts him in a manger. But more remarkable than the swaddling cloth is the fact that he was laid in that manger, a feeding trough for animals. You know, the word manger is so closely, closely associated with the Christmas story that our mind's eye has glamorized it. But make no mistake, it was a trough that animals had no doubt munched from just moments before. And there was no room for them in the inn. This happened in a public place with other travelers and residents. In Christmas plays, it's interesting, we give the poor innkeeper a rough time. He's usually depicted as a straggly, gruff man who callously refuses a pregnant woman space in his inn. But 
there's a plot twist here. The Bible actually doesn't mention an innkeeper. We're just told that there was no room in the inn. Now, inns back in that time were not what we consider traditional hotels. Oddly enough, they would be more like an Airbnb of sorts, an extra room attached to a larger living area that was rented out as hospitality for weary travelers. Now, some larger areas did have some public inns, but these were often dirty places and overran with people. The small little town of Bethlehem, considering its meager size, probably didn't have a public inn, but these small communities had swelled in size because of this census gathering ordered by Caesar Augustus. And immediately after the birth of Jesus, several wonderful events transpire. And this brings us to the second reading this morning in verse 8 of Luke 2. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. Now, we first read about these shepherds out in the fields. There's just something about that phrase that creates such a vivid image in my mind every time I hear or read the Christmas story. Homely-looking shepherds on a quiet hillside watching sheep chew on grass just outside of Bethlehem, and then suddenly something unexpected and wonderful happens. This angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and the response of the shepherds was they were greatly afraid. But the angel says to them, Do not be afraid or fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. So piercing through this quiet, dark night was the shining presence of an angel and the glory of the Lord. The first angel brought good tidings. It literally means that the gospel was preached to these shepherds. And although our shepherds in the church setting with Christmas plays and neatly illustrated children's books are normally depicted as young, smiling, clean-cut people, Shepherds during this time did not have a very great reputation. Indeed, they were thought to be untrusty individuals frequently indulging in stealing and were not even allowed to give testimony in the court of law. And yet, here, they are proclaimed the greatest announcement the world had ever known. So we have this angel pro pro proclaiming this good news to the shepherds, the gospel to the shepherds. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior 
who is Christ the Lord. The Bible clearly presents angels as servants of Almighty God. Though Gabriel had been given the honor of sharing the news of Jesus' birth with Mary, this particular angel is left unnamed. Gabriel and Michael are the only angels who serve God mentioned in Scripture. But the writer of Hebrews, another book in the Old New Testament, tells us that there are countless thousands of angels. They are created beings, created by God, of course. It's very difficult to determine exactly when angels were created, but based on some clues in the Bible, angels were created before humans were created. Way back in the book of Job, the oldest biblical book, God is speaking to Job, asking him questions, and proclaimed that angels were shouting for joy as God was creating the world. So these angels had seen a lot. They had observed humanity. They knew God's plan. They knew the scriptures. They knew humanity was fallen and sinful. They knew God was going to offer redemption and salvation. They knew he would send Jesus. And now they are a part of this great announcement. They had to be excited. And so these majestic angels are depicted to be beautiful creatures. Seraphim and cherubim are mentioned in the Bible with detailed descriptions of their appearances, and they're far more imposing and striking than the common depiction of fair-skinned porcelain angels with two wings and a pretty white robe. Isaiah described the seraphim as each having six wings, two wings that they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Ezekiel saw the cherubim and recorded that each had four faces, one of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, and each had four wings. So it's little wonder that when these amazing creatures appeared before unsuspecting men and women, that the angel's first words are, fear not. And this wasn't just for poetic Shakespearean purposes. This was a matter of being practical. Don't be afraid. Fear not. And in this case, the great news come next comes next. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. The birth of a Savior is exactly the need of mankind. The greatest need of you and me is not that of a therapist, not a doctor, not a teacher, not a ruler, not a reformer, nor a guru. The greatest need of mankind is a Savior, and there is only one all-sufficient Savior, and his name is Jesus. And as this is proclaimed, suddenly there is with the multitude, uh, uh, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. After this single announcement, a whole group of angels appeared. Now, we're not given a number, but it had to be a sight to see an army of angels decorating the night sky and proclaiming peace on earth, goodwill to men. God paints us an interesting contrast between the majestic glory of the angels and the simplicity of Jesus in the manger. It's a habit of God, isn't it, to put his glory in unlikely places and display his kingdom in unexpected ways. And so the shepherds are obedient to the message of the angels. They go with haste and they find Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. There was a sense of urgency. They didn't hesitate at all. And they were given some specific instructions. The angel told them to look for a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. You know, it wasn't unusual to see a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. When our boys were first born, the sweet nurses in the birthing center wrapped them both snugly in a white and blue blanket. They looked like little baby burritos. 
and the nurses tried to show me how to do it, and I was never particularly good at it. Charity had the knack for this. And we finally invested in those swaddling blankets in which we could wrap them up with Velcro tightly, and that helped. But again, though, there was nothing unusual for the angels to tell the shepherds that a baby would be wrapped tightly in cloth. But it was strange to see a baby lying in a manger, a feeding trough. That was different. This specific sign to find Jesus in that manner. They go quickly and they find them. It was a strange sight, this specific sign they were, saw to, they were told to look for. They no longer heard or saw angels. Now the grand revelation by the angels was real. It happened and it aroused the senses and the emotions. But now they see Jesus. The fact of his birth, the reality of who he is and what he came to do was there. The angels had left, but Jesus remained. And after the shepherds are vouched this miraculous sight, and they're quickly on the move, they leave and they go and make widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. You know, the combination of the angelic announcement and the sign of the child in the feeding trough inspired the shepherds to tell as many people as they could about what they had heard and about what they had seen. The shepherds' good news amazed everyone that heard it. It was the beginning of the great redemptive rescue mission on earth. Jesus would reach adulthood. He would perform miracles. He would preach the kingdom of God. He would go to the cross. He would die. He would rise again. And even though there was much yet to understand, the people who heard realized that something significant had happened. And Luke ends this portion of the narrative by telling us that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary's reaction was different than either the shepherds or those who heard the message of the shepherds. In only the way that a mother can do, she calmly took it in and pondered over it all in her heart, seeking to understand the deep meaning of it all. I'm reminded of that beautiful song, Mary, Did You Know? Did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? That sleeping child you're holding is the great I Am. As for the shepherds, they returned to their jobs. The shepherds had such happiness and praise to God because the word was fulfilled just as it was told them. But I think it is worth mentioning that though the shepherds' lives were forever changed by their encounter with Jesus, they did not abandon their posts. We must remember that God in his providence has placed you and me in whatever position or season of life he's placed us in. And in this position, if we will submit to him, he will use us for the kingdom of God. He will use us to minister to others, to love others. He will use us to point people to Jesus and share the gospel with them just as the angels had proclaimed it to the shepherds and then, to the, and then the shepherds to others. We have that great opportunity and mission as well. These positions, like the shepherds, are often unlikely avenues with unlikely people. People perhaps were surrounded by rough and crude folks, but God can and will change their hearts and will use us to soften them. Two takeaways I want us to walk away with from this message. One is the kingdom of heaven is among us. When Jesus were, was born in Bethlehem, there were people walking about the streets. 
children playing, women chatting, men working, food being prepared. And yet the kingdom of God was among them, and many, in fact most, didn't even notice. I shared this story recently at our joint youth service about a story I was reading of a street performer in Washington, D.C., how on a cold Friday morning in the middle of D.C.'s morning rush, This man in jeans and a baseball cap pulled a violin out of his case and began to play, just to earn a few extra bucks. And that morning, he played to nearly 1,100 people who passed by, and like many others on the streets of busy cities, he was hoping once again just to get a few dollars in his violin case. But this was a different man. You see, no one knew it, but the fiddler that was standing against the bare wall outside of the metro in Washington, D.C. was one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made. His name was Josh Bell, and three days before, he had played at Boston Symphony Hall to a pack house where tickets went for an average of $100, and the violin he was playing on was worth three and a half million dollars and had been handcrafted by a man by the legendary Antonio Stardivari. But throughout that morning, only seven people stopped for a brief moment to listen, and only 27 gave any money. Over a thousand people never even stopped to acknowledge the musician. They never even turned to look. You know, friends, something similar happened at the birth of Christ 2,000 years ago. The creator of the universe came as a baby in a feeding trough, and very few people at the time even seemed to notice. God didn't choose to enter the world as a conquering king or a triumphant hero. He came as a baby born in a dirty stable because there was no room in the inn. God's kingdom is among us, though, and it cannot be stopped. And the second thing is that all are the same at the foot of the cross. If you will recall, last Sunday we focused largely on the journey and the character of the wise men, and no greater contrast could be made in the biblical Christmas story than that between the majestic, ornate, affluent wise men and the lowly, outcast shepherds. God is telling us something here that is both obvious and profound. The wise men learned rich Gentiles coming from a faraway land, the shepherds, unlearned, poor, Jews coming from a nearby Bethlehem countryside. But yet Jesus is God's gift to all people, a gift that depending on how we receive him determines our eternal destinies. We're told by Luke that many of the people marveled at what the shepherds shared with them. Indeed, it was a marvelous thing to witness and hear God's work who he is, and what he has done. But we must do more than marvel. We must surrender. In 1833, Danish artist by the name of Bertul Thorvaldsen sculpted out of marble a famous statue of Jesus depicting him after his resurrection. Amazingly, Thorvaldsen sculpted the statue in such a way that you cannot see the face of Jesus when you are standing and looking at him. To do that, to see his face, one must stoop down, down, down until they are on their knees before Christ. Only then can one look up and see his face. Christ came into the world as a baby, but he will return as a victorious king. 
As Paul reminds us a verse we often and appropriately quote, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Like many classic songs that were written centuries ago, we don't sing all the original verses of O Come All Ye Faithful. In the 4th century AD, church leaders had gathered to discuss, among other things, the divine nature of Jesus Christ. With this question, was Jesus truly the eternal God himself, the second person of the Trinity as we believe here, or was he merely another person created, or was he merely another being, I should say, created by God? 300 biblical scholars had gathered in attendance, and they confirmed that the Bible indeed taught that Jesus was God the Almighty, and they would write it in the famous Nicene Creed, which this church prescribes to, that we believe in one God, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. But this correct view of Jesus didn't come about without some serious debate. One person in attendance named Arius would not shut up about his view and belief that Jesus was not fully God. Finally, another scholar, a bishop named Nicholas, had had enough. Legend has it that Nicholas stood up and walked over to Arius and slapped him in the face. So passionate was he about the deity of Jesus Christ. And that view, thankfully, prevailed. It's the right one. It's the biblical one. But this same bishop became somewhat of a hero, giving presents to children, and eventually was awarded sainthood. Today, we affectionately remember this man, St. Nicholas, as a jolly old man, but his actions also inspired an important stanza of the song, O Come All Ye Faithful, that we normally don't sing. True God of true God, Lot from lot eternal, lo he shuns not the virgin's womb, son of the father, begotten, not created. Very close to the great proclamation of the Nicene Creed. The shepherds knelt before not a mere baby, but the one true God, and we are invited to do that as well, not just at Christmas, but every day of our lives as we eagerly await his appearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O come all ye faithful, is clearly an invitation. Lord, you do not force us to follow you. You do not force us to love you. But your hands are always extended to us, asking us to come and taste and see that you are good. God, help us to do that this morning, to see you with fresh eyes, to experience your holiness with a fresh heart and to trust the truth of Scripture and devote our lives to you so that we may raise our families to love and to serve you and that we may go out into our homes and our communities and our world and proclaim the great message that the shepherds were proclaiming, that the angels proclaimed that a Savior has been born. There is good news of great joy that is for all people. A Savior has come, and his name is Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.